Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was eating on the nearside hillside, nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town in the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is God's word for you and for me tonight. If you would, let's pray before we consider it, okay? Father, we do ask that in these next few moments you would be gracious and kind to teach us. Uh, Father, we, we, uh, we don't just pray before we look at a passage because that's just what you're supposed to do, but we pray because we have no hope of understanding this apart from your Spirit's help. So Spirit, we, we throw ourselves at your mercy and, and beg of you to teach us to open up our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts, uh, that we may uh, behold the beauty of who you are once again. And we would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by asking you a few questions tonight. How do you become a Christian? How do you grow as a Christian? How do you uh, get access to deeper joy? Uh, How do you get more purpose in your life, more passion in your life? Well, I want to tell you that the answer to all of those questions are one and the same. And the way that I want to try to answer this question for you is to tell you about my two-year-old daughter. My daughter, Zoe Kate, our daughter, Catherine's here somewhere, our daughter, Zoe Kate, there she is. Uh, I often find myself telling her what to do. So I'll say things to her like, don't eat that off of the ground. Uh, Don't 
hit your mother. Don't put your hand in the dog food. Don't throw the yogurt against the wall. Stop whining. Stop doing that. And whenever this series of commands comes to my daughter, uh, she usually doesn't hear, doesn't respond, and so you have to repeat it over and over and over. And every now and then, it'll break through and she'll actually pay attention. And usually, she'll have one of two responses to these commands. She will either uh, be provoked to defiance where she's about to put something in her mouth. I'll say, do not put that in your mouth. And she looks at me, in the mouth it goes. (laughs) Straight up defiance. Or uh, shame and guilt and tears and melting into a puddle on the ground. Every now and then she will obey. But usually when my law comes to her, it is one of two commands. It is one of two responses. Defiance, guilt, shame, tears. But... Whenever I sit down and I read a book to her, we have a different scenario. Uh, Because now we find ourselves sitting in the chair and she is still, she is calm, she's transfixed, and we're pounding through three or four Dora the Explorer books, you know, per night, and she's totally locked in, totally dialed in, totally engaged, and she's interactive, she's pointing out boots and map and the backpack, and, and <laughs> even, when, even when we're not reading the book, she's, she's singing the song throughout the day, you know, she's talking about Dora, she's saying swiper, no swiping throughout our day, and, and so you have a very different reaction when we read a story to her. She's locked in, she's engaged, uh, that story has kind of captured her little imagination. So here's the question. How do you become a Christian? How do you grow as a Christian? How do you get more joy, more passion, more purpose in your life? It is not through submitting to laws, to commands. It's not by modifying your behavior. It's not by making resolutions. It's not by trying harder. All of those are great, and they have a place in the Christian life for sure. But the answer to those questions are one and the same. It is when you get lost in the story of the gospel, the way that you become a Christian, the way that you grow as a Christian, the way you get access to deeper joy, passion, purpose. It's when you get lost in the story of the gospel and you find yourself transfixed and engaged and interactive and changed as a result. Good stories inspire you. Systems of rules don't. And so what I want to do is uh, just show you that this story that we just read is in some ways a prototype of the larger story of Jesus. It's a little bit of a microcosm of of who Jesus is and what he does. And so if we're going to take a closer look at this story, we're going to find out what the bigger, deeper, larger story of Jesus is really about. And we're going to see three things from this story that clue us into what the bigger story of Jesus is about. We see that Jesus enters, he restores, and then he sins. Not sins, S-I-N-S, but sins with a D, S-E-N-D-S. He enters, he restores, and then he sins. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these just one at a time, because if we understand this story, then we'll have a little bit of a clue of unlocking the bigger story, where we can get lost in the bigger story of the gospel. So... Let's look at this first thing, that Jesus enters. And just to cite my sources, I am uh, leaning heavily on the pastors, Sandy Wilson and Sean Slate. So big up to them. Shout out. Thank you for your help. He enters. Well, okay, the story begins by telling us that Jesus and his entourage, uh, they get in this boat and they cross a lake to intentionally go to this region called the region of the Gerasenes. 
Now, that doesn't mean anything to you and me, but for people who were Jewish at this particular point in history, culturally speaking, that was Gentile territory, which meant that is unclean area. That's, that, is a, that is a dangerous part of the world. That, that's the bad neighborhood. That's you know the other side of the tracks that every little Jewish kid would have been told by his mother, do not go there. Do not go. And, and you see what is happening is, if you go back just a few verses into chapter 4, you find out that this was actually Jesus' idea to go to this place. He says, let's get in a boat and I want to go there. And he's beelining it like a heat-seeking missile to this dangerous, scary, unclean, nasty place. And you would have to think that um, the disciples with him would have been a little apprehensive about this whole idea. They have been told since they were young, do not go there, do not step foot in that place. And so they're a little hesitant. Jesus, I'm not sure I really want to do this, but he's determined, beelines it there. And as soon as they get there, dock the boat, get out. A man who is buck naked starts sprinting towards them, screaming at the top of his lungs. Now you have to imagine the disciples would have been like, um, yeah, that, see, this is why we didn't really want to come here. You know, this was a lovely field trip, Jesus, but let's, <laughs> let's head on back. And so, okay, let's take, a, let's take a closer look at this man, because this story really kind of centers on him. What do we find out? Look, look at verse 3. It tells us that he was living among the tombs. He's living in a graveyard. He, he has surrounded himself by death. Okay, look at verse 2. It says that he has an unclean spirit, which means uh, he was possessed by demons. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, that's just really hard to hear for our Western, modern sensitivities. And I just want you to see that the Bible is just kind of unashamedly supernatural. It says, yeah, demons exist. Yeah, Satan exists. And it just kind of assumes it. We can talk more about that off the record if you want. But I just want to point out... uh, it's weird to us. It's not weird that it's in the Bible. Verse 3. Look at it. It says that he's, he's basically he's uncontrollable. He was so strong that no one, no one could chain him. It was basically like the Hulk. You try to chain him, you just bust through, you know, rip off the chains. Which makes the assumption that people used to try to contain him and control him and help him, but they don't anymore. They, they've, they've kind of given up on him. They've just kind of let him loose to kind of do his own thing. And if you look at verse 5, we find out that he's in a lot of pain. Because it says that he spends his nights crying out. He, he, spe- he, he doesn't sleep through the night because he spends his night crying. And then it goes on to say that he actually cuts himself uh, with stones. Now what do we have here? We have a man who is completely isolated, uh, completely left alone to himself. Uh, people have completely given up on him. He's self-destructive. He's um, a slave to this own inner chaos that he's experiencing in his own life. And my guess is you can relate with this man in some way or another. Even though he's naked and demon-possessed and running around and screaming, you can relate and you can identify with this person at one level or another. So if you think about it, some of you know what it is like to feel given up on. You know what it is like to feel like you're just completely written off and like unwanted garbage, written off by your friends, by your parents, by your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Some of you know exactly what that's like. 
Some of you, like this man, you can't sleep at night. You are so weighed down by fear or by guilt or anxiety, you can't sleep. Some of you are like this man where you, just, you can't sleep because you just find yourself weeping uncontrollably at night. Or maybe you can't sleep because you, you can't turn your, your brain off. You know, you're, you're, even when you're not at the library, you're not studying, you, you can't gear down. You're always thinking. You're always working through the to-do list. You're always working in your head. You can't sleep. You can't stop. Some of you are like this man where you actually hurt yourself physically. Razors, knives, lit cigarettes. Or some of you may hurt yourself in a different way in the sense that you just starve your body so that your body will look a certain way. Hurting your own physical body. And I'm guessing that some of you, just like this man, you feel that, that inner chaos where it feels like your emotions are just like, you know, cont- totally out of control. You know what I'm talking about? Where you... You, you, you feel this uncontrollable rage one moment, and then, and then this wave of like unexplainable sadness crashes over you and just buries you for weeks at a time where you just cannot get out of it. My guess is, uh, is that you can relate a lot like this guy. And here's what I want you to see. Here's this man who is lonely, he is hurting, he is messed up, he is overwhelmed, he is in pain, he's cutting himself, he's violent, he's self-destructive, and this is who Jesus goes after. This is who Jesus is making a beeline for. It is for people like this, people who are a complete wreck, a complete mess. You are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And what I, want, what I want you to see with this first point is that when Jesus enters into this man's life and enters into this story, it tells us something very interesting about the way that God works in the world. Because it tells us that people like this, he doesn't give up on. He doesn't write off. He actually pursues and he enters. And in fact, my guess is, and my belief is, that he is pursuing his people right here and right now. The reason why you're in this room in the first place listening to this and interacting with this is because he's orchestrated your week so that you could sit right here in these chairs and interact with this story. Maybe you are here because you want to be here, you love RUF, or maybe your friend brought you here kicking and screaming, you don't know what in the world this is that you just got yourself into, but here you are for one reason or the other. And maybe, could it be that Jesus is entering into your life, maybe for the first time, That's the first thing I want you to see, is that Jesus enters. Secondly, he restores. He enters and he restores. It's interesting. If you look at verse 7, it says this man runs up to Jesus and he he yells out to Jesus. Let me read it. Verse 7, he says, He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. It doesn't say that the demon said that. It said that the man said that. And here's where this gets kind of interesting to me, because I would have thought, if I were the man, and I run up to Jesus, I would have said something like, dude, you've got to get this demon out of me, I'm miserable, I'm violent, I hate this, fix me, please. But he doesn't say that. He runs up to Jesus and he says, don't torture me. He views Jesus' redemptive help as torture. He views Jesus' redemptive help as torture. And, and We learn something really interesting about the kingdom of Satan, about the nature of sin here. Here's what it is. Sin, Satan, wants to destroy you. It really does. But it will convince you, and it will lie to you, and it will tell you that if you involve Jesus in your life in some way or another, it will be torturous. It will be torment. He is unsafe. Personal example from my life. 
there is um, a really, really shameful part of my past, really shameful part of my story. There's maybe four people on the planet, including my wife, that know this about me. And I had for years, for years, been living with this idea that if, if anyone finds this out about me, uh, they, they will think differently of me. They will uh, think that I'm gross. They'll think that I'm nasty. They won't want, they won't want anything to do with me. And so that was, the, that was the narrative that I was living in and believing for years and for years and for years. And so this past spring, I finally got to the point where I, where I wanted to tell a, a friend of mine, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you tonight, weirdos. Um, but I, I called my friend. I, I called my friend. I said, okay, I'm going to tell him. I want to bring this part of me out of the darkness and into the, in, into the light because I feel like this is what uh, God is calling us as Christians to do. And I remember picking up the phone and calling him. He lived in a different state. And uh, I remember the phone shaking in my hand because I was so afraid of what he was going to think, what he was going to say, what his response was going to be. And I told him, and his response uh, was affirming to me that he loved me, that he was for me, that God loves me, that God forgives me, that God is for me. And that moment was so pivotal because I had been living in this lie that said, okay, if I bring this out, if I confess, if I, if I am known to other people, they will write me off, they, they will destroy me, it will ruin my life. But what actually happened was when I told him this, it was the most liberating thing that I could have done. Because now, he, he knows me to the bottom of who I am now, in some way. And I don't feel like I have to hide around him. I don't feel like I have to worry that he's going to find something out about me. He sees me to the bottom, and, and he loves me, and he, resp- and he receives me. And it, it's actually made our friendship that much deeper, because I know that he knows a, a big junk part of my life, and he doesn't write me off. But I was living under the lie that I believe Satan had been whispering in my ear, if you involve Jesus in this, it is gonna, it's torture. It is slavery. It will not help you. It's torture. And, and, and he's a liar. Because it, it was the pathway actually to freedom and to liberation and to deeper joy and to deeper friendship. In a similar way, for example, Satan will convince you that if you refuse to forgive someone, it's actually for your good. If someone's hurt you, Satan's going to whisper in your ear, Jesus wants you to forgive them. Do not do it. When you withhold forgiveness, you you keep control, you protect yourself, you stay safe, you protect yourself from ever them hurting you again. So don't forgive. If you forgive, it's death, it's torture. Withhold the forgiveness. Anne Lamont, who is this writer, she said withholding forgiveness is like you swallowing rat poison and hoping that by doing that, that kills the rat. The point is, when you withhold forgiveness, it doesn't affect the other person. It affects you. Your insides rot out. You become bitter. You become uh, mean. You become judgmental. You become guarded. You become less human. And Satan is what, that's what Satan is saying. Do that. If you obey Jesus and you actually forgive, that is torture. And it's a lie. Or another way that Satan kind of lies to us is he comes to you and he says, if you obey Jesus about your sexuality, it will be torture. What? You're going to go against every instinct that you have? Every urge that you have, every physical temptation that you have, you're going to just cut all that off to serve Jesus? That's torture. That is painful. But if you give in and, and you believe the lie, 
and, and you do not obey Jesus about your sexuality, what happens? Your life gets damaged. You uh, damage other people. Your life spins out of control. There's damage and damage and more death. And it's a lie. Submitting to Jesus is not torture. It is redemptive. It's liberation. That's what Jesus is doing. He enters and he restores. But look what happens next. He comes up to this man and he asks him his name, which the guy responds and says, Legion, which is a little bit of a technical term of sorts because a legion in a Roman army, a legion was a squadron of 6,000 soldiers. So, so scholars have kind of postulated that this man was possessed by something like 6,000 demons. So Jesus is like toe-to-toe against like this army of evil. And with just a sentence... He casts the demons out of this dude, heals him and restores him. And look look what it says, verse 15. The man was transformed, renovated, restored, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. This man had been running around naked, out of control, violent, destructive. And here he is, calm, whole, dressed, sane. Jesus restores our sanity. He restores peace and calm and order back into our life and makes us see how insane sin really is and how crazy we were at all to even buy into it. Now, before we jump on to this last point, I I, I feel like I've got to show you um, the crowd's response. Because if you think about it, the crowd, here was this minister society, basically, and it just got fixed. (laughs) But the crowd doesn't throw a party. Uh, they don't celebrate. Uh, they're not even happy about this. They are pissed off about this. Look at verse 17. It says that they go up to Jesus and they beg him to leave. Jesus, you've got to get out of here. Why? Well, um, in order for Jesus to heal this man, he sends these demons into these this herd, this herd of about 2,000 pigs that then run off and drown in the ocean. And there's lots of scholars that come up with ideas about why these demons had to go on these pigs and why these pigs had to run off and go swimming. Uh, and there's lots of different ideas about that and I don't know what in the world to think about that. And that's not the point. The point that is important here is that you have to remember this is Gentile territory. Jewish people do not eat pork. They would not go to meat night tomorrow night. Gentile people did. So this is, this is a pig farm. And so when Jesus does, is he, just, he just killed 2,000 livestock. This was their livelihood. So when Jesus rolls up into this town, he decimates them economically. And rightly so, now they're angry about it and they want him to leave. And here's what's going on with this. In order for Jesus to heal this man, it was immensely costly. And the people that were looking in thought Legion wasn't worth it. He was not worth that much money. 2,000 pigs for one guy? Come on. Angry about it. He's not worth it. it. He was not worth it to them. But he was worth it to Jesus. Because to heal this man, to restore this man, didn't just cost 2,000 pigs, ultimately, to save this man, it would cost Jesus his life. What do we see at the end of the Gospel of Mark? At the very end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the one that ends up naked on the cross. Jesus is the one that ends up isolated and written off, not just by his friends, but by his heavenly Father as well on the cross. Just like this man... Jesus is outside of the city in the, in the tombs. 
Just like this man, Jesus is the one that is being cut open. What is going on? In order to save this man, Jesus had to substitute himself for this man. In order to kill and to stop sin and Satan and death, Jesus had to fall underneath the weight of it himself. He had to be crushed by God's hammer on the cross so that he could be restored and you and I could be restored. He is acting as his substitute. And here's what you have to see. Jesus is saying sinful, broken, messy, evil, wicked people, they're worth it to me. They may not be worth it to anyone else, but they're worth it to me. And what you have to hear is you are worth it to him as well. You are worth it to him. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with students, with y'all, who you feel embarrassed and guilty about sharing your life and your problems with other people. And with me. Because what you say is, I, you know, I just don't, I don't want to be a burden to anyone. I don't want to burden people with my issues, with my problems. And what you're really saying is, I don't think my, my problems are worth other people's times. Worth other people's time. I, I think my issues are a waste of people's time. And that is a lie. That is not true. It is worth it. It is worth talking about. You are worth it. As you can see, you are worth it to Jesus. It's not just about giving up pigs. It's about giving up his life. The one thing that he had that could ultimately save people like you and me. So, zoom back out. Jesus enters. There's no person that he is um, unwilling to, or no place that he's unwilling to go. He, he restores. There's no person that he's unwilling to save. And lastly, what I want you to see is that he sins and that there's no person that he's unwilling to use. Here's how the story ends. As the people are begging Jesus to leave, verse 18, this man runs up to Jesus and he's begging Jesus to go with him. He wants to be basically uh, in ministry with Jesus. He wants to go back over the sea. He wants to be an overseas missionary with Jesus. And, and look at Jesus' uh, response in verse 19. Jesus is like, nah, I'm good. Like, I got, I got enough people with me. I'm, I'm all right. Now, why wouldn't Jesus want this guy to join him? Because if you think about it, this guy would have an amazing testimony. I mean, he could stand up at church and kind of tell his story and pack the place out. And he would be an asset to Jesus' ministry. But Jesus doesn't receive him. Instead, Jesus sends him. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, go home. Go home. And tell your friends and your family about my mercy. He doesn't say start an evangelistic program. He doesn't say start a nonprofit. He just says, go home. Go be with the people that you live with. Tell them about my mercy to you. He doesn't say you don't have to be in leadership team. You don't have to have seminary training. Just go tell them about what I've done in your life. And here's what's interesting to me about this is that it's really easy for Christians to get really consumed and excited about doing something for the kingdom over there. We want to do something for the kingdom over there in China, in Africa, in India, somewhere over there. And while that is great and it's absolutely essential and someone's got to do it, it really is important. We can get so excited about doing something for the kingdom over there and we forget that he sends us right here, right now. And he calls us to live and to share the gospel and to be the gospel and embody the gospel right here and right now. And if you're a Christian, this means that God is sending you somewhere. And that sending doesn't take place at graduation. It doesn't take place at spring break. It doesn't take place next summer. He's sending you somewhere right now. 
And that place that he's sending you is where you are. Meaning, you live with those people for a reason. You're on that hall for a reason. You're in that fraternity, that sorority for a reason. You're in that apartment complex for a reason. You're in that room of people in your class for a reason. And he's sending you there, right here, right where you live, to love and to share the mercy of God with the people that you actually rub shoulders with every single day. Uh, this summer I reread C.S. Lewis's great book, um, Screwtape Letters. If you're familiar at all with kind of the basic premise about this, it's a, f- a fictitious exchange of letters between a mentor demon and kind of his apprentice demon, and they're working on this kind of human patient, like the subject. And so the mentor demon is kind of given the, the apprentice demon advice on how to mess with this guy's life. And here's something that the mentor demon writes. He says this. He says, look, there is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. Meaning, okay, your human subject is going to have hatred and love tied in there together. And he says, okay, here's what you have to do. The great thing, the thing that you have to do is to direct his malice to his immediate neighbors whom he meets every day. And then to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people that he does not know. And then the malice becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. You see what he's saying? That's brilliant. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, it's easy to love somebody over there, someone we've never met, faces we never met, and it's really easy to get frustrated and angry and hateful towards the people that we rub shoulders with day in and day out, our roommates, the people in our hall, the people that are sitting next to you in here. And and, and C.S. Lewis is saying, if that's where you are, if your love is for people over there, people you've never met, and your hatred and your frustration is for people right here, that is satanic. It's not Christian. And that's convicting. Because I know how easy it is uh, to love somebody I've never met and to get really frustrated with the people I live with day in and day out. You know those, um, those bumper stickers you see all over town? They say, uh, it's like buy local or prioritize local, something like that. I want to make an RUF bumper sticker that says love local. Because that is the Christian message here. To love local, to love the actual people that you're with. Because if you think about it, it's so much harder to love people locally than it is to love people over there. It is way easier to go to India for a week and build houses for a stranger that you've never met and will never see again. It is a lot harder to ask for forgiveness from your roommate who you sin against day in and day out. It's a lot harder to grant forgiveness to your roommate who sins against you day in and day out. It is a lot harder to confront your friends against their sin. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot easier to go to another country and for a semester, for a summer, and clean up their town, their village, than it is to actually clean up your room and clean up your dishes for your roommate. It's just harder to love locally, and yet this is where Jesus sends us. At least right now. Maybe he'll send you over there as well, but at least for right now, if you know the Lord Jesus, this is what he's calling you to do, and he's sending you to do. So let me end with, um, with two more questions. And the question, uh, first question that I want to ask, let me set, up, set it up this way. You know when you're watching a TV show or a movie, and let's say it's a really suspenseful movie and, you're, and you're, you know, your heart's beating, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of anxious, freaking out as you're watching it. 
Or if you're watching you know, The Walking Dead or a scary movie and, you, and you're, uh, you're afraid and you're kind of freaking out as you're watching the show or uh, you're watching uh, a sad movie and you find yourself you know, bawling in your room. Here's the question. Why are you so emotionally engaged in those moments? Because if you, if you think about it, when you're watching The Walking Dead and you're freaking out and your heart is beating and you're you know, feeling suspense, the reality of that moment is that there's no zombie in your living room. It, it is you in your pajamas with a bowl of ice cream watching a screen. That's the reality. Why are you freaking out? You know, if you find yourself bawling you know, in bed, uh, the, the reality is, is that there's not a real dog that uh, just passed away. You're, you're in bed with your laptop, so why are you crying? <coughs> Here's the question. Why are you emotionally engaged when, the re- when you're not actually living in reality? Here's the second question. I want to set it up this way. When I was uh, a senior in high school, 1999 to be exact, I bought tickets to the opening premiere of Star Wars Episode One release. 7 a.m. Saturday morning, and I waited in line with people dressed as stormtroopers and people dressed as Chewbacca and Jedis and all kinds of things I didn't know how to identify. Uh, why were those people dressed up like that? Or why did people dress up like wizards at Barnes & Noble on the release of Harry Potter books? So here's the question. Why, why, are, why are these people so... Why is this modifying their behavior in such a way that they're actually changing what they wear when they go to these places? Those are the last two questions. Why, does our emo- why do our emotions get engaged in stories, and why does it actually affect what we do? Well, that's what happens when you get lost in a good story. It engages your emotions, and it actually changes your behavior. It changes your life. And all of these stories point to the story, the story of Jesus, where he enters into this broken world and into our messy lives, where he restores us to something that's more glorious beyond our former glory. And then he sends us out to be agents of change in the world. That, when, you, when you get lost in that story, and that story is the world that you actually live in and live out of, that's how you get access to deeper joy. That's how you get more passion and more purpose in life. That's how you grow as a Christian. That's how you become a Christian. And so the invitation I want to leave you with tonight is this. Would you open up the possibility of maybe getting lost in the story of the gospel? To live in it and to live out of it. And that's the invitation I want to leave you with this morning. Let me pray. Father, we do ask that the story of the gospel would capture our imagination, that it would uh, activate our heart and our emotions, it would change our behavior, change our lives, change even what we wear. Father, I, I pray that this compelling story of your, of your goodness and of your grace, the way that you pursue us and enter into our lives and, and restore us and change us and then send us out, would, would so define us and so inspire us that we wouldn't be the same as a result of having heard it and experienced it and lived in it. And so that is our prayer for, for me. I need to hear it and for these folks here as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.